Kids are dismissed for Harvest Kids. You can follow Miss Patty and Miss Shelley. How many of you guys are excited for the Browns game? Like, let's go. Travis, if you're watching this, go Browns. So, I'm pretty excited. I, uh, it's, it's fun to watch new teams succeed and new teams excel. And, um, but I do have a question for you this morning. And, and here's the question. What's the hardest thing you've ever done? As you process of your life, what's some of the hardest things that you've done, you've had to go through? And I know wives are probably thinking, dealing with my husband on a day-to-day basis. You know, for me, I'm great with people. I am not great with my hands. So don't ask me to go build something for you. So when we were moving from Wisconsin to Pennsylvania, um, I had to fire rate or fireproof the garage that was attached to the house. Now, I also hate spending money, so I didn't go out and hire somebody to come in and do it, so I attempted to sheetrock my garage myself. Let's just say it took me probably like four or five times longer than people who, who are used to that to do, and that's one of the hardest things that I've done, and, and kind of over the years, you know, as, as a man, you know, I get prideful, I get cocky, oh, I can do this myself. Easy. I probably should have had somebody help me do it because it would have taken less time. But what about you? As you think about your life, are there instances where you tried to do something yourself and, and you, it was hard? It was hard to do. And you realize that having help or having the power of somebody else or having the expertise of somebody else coming in would help you or enable you to do it well. I know even as leaders in a church or in, in, in a setting, we realize as leaders, great leaders know when their capabilities are met, and they know when they need to bring others to help them to succeed, to help them excel. Like me, as a blue, I am not great with administrative stuff. And so for me, bringing people alongside of me who are great with admin work helped me to do my job well. And so over these last couple of weeks we've been in this 40 days of prayer and two weeks ago we talked about the holiness of God and we talked about how good he is and last week we reflected on how unholy we are and the need for us to repent and the Bible says that when we confess our sins he'll forgive us and not only will he forgive us but he'll send the helper He'll send the Spirit into our lives and into the world to enable us to live well. And as believers, one of the hardest things that we can do is to live the Christian life. Which may be some of the things you've been thinking about, you know, you were able to eventually accomplish. That's one thing. But we're going to talk about today is the idea of spirit empowerment and spiritfulness. The idea that we recognize that we cannot live the spirit life on our own. We are incapable of living the Christian life without the empowerment of the spirit. And so this morning, 
Um, join me in opening up to Romans 8. And we're going to start in verse 1, but before we do that, let's, let's enter into some time of prayer. Lord, this morning as we, as we learn about our incapabilities and your abilities, God, I pray, Father, that we would be willing to humble ourselves to realize that we are incapable of living the Christian life without you. So this morning, Father, I pray that you'll speak to us and allow us to see that um, and, and to honor you and to give you the glory in that process. So God, I ask right now that you'll speak through me. God, that may this message that you've uh, worked through me, God, I pray, Father, that it would come alive, that you would challenge us, Jesus. So God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans 8, starting in verse 1, um, and, and many people actually say that not only is Romans the greatest book in the entire Bible, but Romans 8 is probably the greatest chapter in the entire Bible for some. And it starts out like this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. And those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So one of my favorite movies is Space Jam. And I don't know about you, but this year Space Jam 2 comes out, and I cannot wait. But in this film, right, it had some of the all-time great basketball players. It had Michael Jordan. It had Patrick Ewan. It had Larry Bird. It had Charles Barkley. It had Muggsy Bowes. Like, all of these great basketball players. And in the movie, you had these two worlds, right? You had the real world, and then you had the Looney Tune world. And in the Looney Tune world, uh, you had Bugs Bunny and all them kind of in conflict with the monsters, the aliens, And the aliens started controlling, and they realized that the only way to probably overtake them and win this was a basketball game. So what did they do? They decided to pull Michael Jordan down a golf course hole into their world. And so there, Michael Jordan, meeting up with these aliens, made kind of this, this decision. Okay, uh, if, if you beat us, I'm your slave. If we win, you know, you have to give back the power. So what happened was the aliens went into the real world and started stealing the, super, like the abilities of these basketball stars. And these monsters went from these little puny things to these big mus muscular, macho, what they call, they call themselves the monsters, right? And with these abilities, they were great. And so Michael Jordan said, if we win, you got to give them back. And so they played the game, and in the end, the Looney Tunes won. And Michael Jordan taken all the powers, so they put all these powers into his basketball, 
and he walked into the gym, and this was one of the final scenes. Guys, we suck. Yeah, man, my grandmother played better than I did. At least you guys are still tall. I'm nothing now, just another short guy. You got that right. The only thing you got right. Who's that? Who is that? I don't know. Been getting your butts kicked, haven't you? That's Mike. That's Mike. Hey, man, what you doing here? Don't be embarrassed. Just face it. You guys stink. Come on, Mike. Lighten up, man. Yeah, I know. Up, man. And you want your games back, huh? What little games you had to begin with. Yeah, man. It's hard enough as it is, Mike. Come on, give us a break. I'm gonna regret this. Stan, give me the ball. Look like some Star Trek. Touch it. No way, Jose. Pat, you want your talent back? You don't have any other choice. Just touch it. I don't know, man. Don't touch that, Pat. Okay, you're gonna walk around with a bad game for the rest of your career. Touch the ball. Careful, Pat. Tried everything else. Charles, touch it. Rest you guys. Just touch it. What's that? I like that, Mike. Hey, hey I caught it. Another bugs in the rock. I'm telling you. Handle it, baby. Handle oh, that rock again. That's the oh, new right Yeah, get hyped now. Some three on three with us. No, I don't think so. What are you gonna do? Work on that baseball swing? Now leave the baseball player alone, man. You know he doesn't play basketball anymore. You know he probably doesn't even have it anymore, guys. Michael, do you hear that? They don't think you can play the game anymore. There's only one way to find out. So Michael, bringing this ball back, gave the players back their power and ability to play the game of basketball that they love. And if you watch the movie, you know, you notice that without it, they were clumsy, they were unable to dribble, they couldn't shoot, and all these things. And you're probably like Pastor Mike, what is the connection? Here's the connection. One of the greatest struggles in following Jesus is that we are either doing it on our own strength and willpower, or doing it with Jesus' strength and his power. When we try to live the Christian life with our power, we will fail, and we will be clumsy. And maybe you'll do good here and there, but in the end, you will ultimately fail. But with the power of the Spirit that we're going to talk about, and living and walking in the power of the Spirit, you will live the Christian life that God has called you to live because you are not doing it on your own power. You're doing it from the one who gave us life. And so Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. 
Now, I don't know if you've, you know, ever seen somebody who is drunk, but they, they lose the ability to function for most of them. They lose the ability to do anything, and, and uh, Paul is just encouraging, like, hey, don't allow those things to control you. If you want to be controlled by something, allow the Spirit to fill you. Be controlled by the Spirit. And this idea of being filled with the Spirit in the Greek kind of means this continual process. Because, yeah, when we accept Jesus, the Bible says that we are indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit comes and makes his home among us. But that doesn't give us the power to live the Christian life. The idea of walking in the Christian life and walking in the Spirit is a continual process, a continual recognition, a continual faith and trust, a continual willingness to allow the Spirit to control us. And in order to understand that, we first need to understand what is the difference between the true Christian life and religion. See, religion and regulations are not the same as faith and freedom. I love the beginning of this passage. It says, though there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that when we accept Jesus, we're free from having to fulfill the law of Moses. That we're free from the power that that enslaves over us. And so, religion, which teaches what? It teaches that we have to do something in order to earn God's favor. There's always this checklist with religion that if you do this and do this and do this, you'll earn God's love. And regulations, you know, if you follow these things, you know, great, everything's good. I mean, in, in our world, right, we have laws. Uh, um, we have speed limits, and when we break the speed limits, what happens? We get a ticket, right? And so there's these regulations, but it's the, regu- the regulations don't change a person's heart. I mean, I can admit that I've been pulled over more than once. It doesn't change my heart. It doesn't change my... Um, my, my skill to pay attention to the speed limits, right? So what is this? Well, first and foremost, right? A fleshly desire wants a law or standard that earns or justifies our worth as recipients of God's acceptance, right? Our, our desires, right? We want to be able to follow these rules and be okay. Like, if we follow them, great, we're okay. But here's the reality. Religion and regulations, the law actually condemns all persons under those regulations because they prove our inability to earn the favor of the one who created the law. We can continually try, right? Throughout the Old Testament, they tried, they tried, they tried to follow the law, but in the end, what happens? They continually failed because the law revealed their inability to follow that, their inability to to earn God's favor, their inability to earn God's love because they were trying to follow something that in the end proved that they couldn't do it. And and this law is is the principle of what God created because the law in itself is holy, right? God created it, and if God created it, it is holy. So the law itself is holy, but what happens is that when they tried to follow the commandments and they tried to follow things, what actually happened was that they proved to themselves they couldn't, which is why they needed sacrifices, which is why God allowed them to to bring sacrifices that, that were able to temporarily forgive them of their sins. But their faith in that was the relationship that God had with them. 
Romans 7, right before this chapter, said that sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. As a result of this holy law that we cannot do, when sin came in the world, it actually killed us. Right? When Adam and Eve broke the command, the law of God, their spirit died. Before that, they were alive. They were walking with God in the garden. They were living their life in, in, in holiness with God. But as a result of them falling away, that broke, which caused our need for something more. Galatians 2.19 says, For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements. This idea of that, that there is no condemnation, right? Romans 8.1, one of my favorite passages, means that, that we are free from meeting its requirements because the blood of Jesus already met them for us. And we first and foremost have to come to recognize that that we are nothing without the blood of Jesus. That our faith is nothing if Jesus didn't come and die for us. And so, in order to be empowered by the Spirit, we first and foremost need to recognize that we cannot, in our ability, earn God's favor. That we cannot get to heaven by our good works. That we must accept what Jesus Christ has done for us. When God questions that org, it says that most religions, theistic or otherwise, is man-centered. Any relationship with God is based on man's work, but most religions are similar in that they are built upon the concept that man can reach a higher power or state of being through his own efforts. In most religions, man is the aggressor and the deity is the beneficiary of man's efforts. God is not the beneficiary of our good works. We are the beneficiary of his grace and his mercy. And we have to recognize that first and foremost. See, our spirit is perpetually defeated and weakened when we submit to the laws of religion and regulation. But we have life and freedom when we submit to following the Holy Spirit in faith. When we believe that Jesus Christ died for us, when we come to recognize that we are no longer have to worry about being obedient to the law, but faithfully following Jesus and the power of the Spirit, that is where freedom comes from. Because when we have a relationship with God, he gives us his spirit to live within us. His Holy Spirit helps us, comforts us, and teaches us how to live our lives according to God's word. His spirit is powerful and is the gift of God to every believer. Every believer has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And when we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have opportunities to be empowered by that same spirit. But they're two separate. See, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that, that the blood of Jesus justifies us, right? And we're forgiven. But the Christian life doesn't stop there. The next part of, uh, of the salvation story is a word that we like to call sanctification, right? The act of becoming more like Jesus. It's when we allow the Spirit to empower us can we walk in that journey of sanctification. And so religion and regulations are not the same as faith and freedom. And faith and freedom come from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? That when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the blood of Jesus redeems us, frees us from the power of sin over us, that law of death, right? Because we cannot by itself... Uh, um, 
fully follow the, the holy law of God, as a result of that, sin came in the world, and as a result of that, we die, and we're dead. We need life. We need somebody who can give us life. And when we accept Jesus, that life comes from the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes back into our souls, it makes us alive again. And so the wages of sin is death. Right? The payment for our sin, the payment of the inability to follow the law is death. And we might be thinking, man, that's not fair. I mean, we break laws here all, every day, all day in America, and, and our, our punishment isn't that, isn't that powerful. How is it that when we sin against God, he, he can have this, this just way of saying, because you sinned, you deserve to die? Well, it's because God is holy. God created the law. God cannot be present with sin. And there's only two opportunities. It's either death or life. There is no in-between. There's no straddling the fence. You're either completely dead or you have accepted Jesus and you are alive. And those who have not accepted Jesus are deemed to spend eternity away from God. And so when we accept Jesus, right, if the, if the payment of sin is death, right, Jesus, the Bible says that, that the blood of Jesus, right, it's the blood of Jesus that, that atoned for those sins. So the sacrificial provision, um, this comes from crossway.org, um, the sacrificial provisions in Leviticus taught the Israelites that God can be approached with the blood of a worthy substitute. And while all of these sacrifices might seem like an unbearable burden to us, wouldn't you be relieved as an Israelite to know that instead of paying the penalty for sin yourself, God would accept a substitute in your place? None of the animals offered in these sacrifices could in and themselves take away a person's sins or truly pay the debt for sin. But by offering these sacrifices in faith, the people of the Old Testament demonstrated their faith in Christ, the superior once-for-all sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is the only way for us to be redeemed from the penalty of sin. The penalty, which is death, is through the blood of Jesus. And I love this verse in 1 John 4, 9 through 11. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right? The cover, right? The blood of Jesus fully covered the payment. He redeemed us through his blood. And so since God loved us, we ought to love one another. And so the new state, right, in Jesus removed us from the law of death into the law of freedom in Christ. You are free to no longer follow the law. I love Galatians, Romans 6, where it says, you know, do we continue to sin? No, why? Because we've been, we've died with Christ, right? In, in baptism, we've died with Christ, and we've risen to new life. And in that new life, we're called to walk away from sin. While the Bible says that God forgives us of our sins, we are not to continually walk in this way and say, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to ask God for forgiveness, right? A true repentant heart says, you know what? I'm done with this life, and I'm going this way. Last week, we, we spent time repenting, and this week, I, um, in a, a children's conference that I was watching, the one guy, I love it, he said this, repentance is coming home. 
It's coming back to the intention of what God originally created the world to be. That we're going in this direction, and when we repent, we're saying, Lord, I'm coming home. I'm coming back to what you intended everything to be. And I want to walk this way. And so we don't have to have the burden uh, of trying to follow all these rules and, and burn ourselves out trying to do this, and in the end, we're still going to fail. There was an a, a evangelism course that my mom used to teach growing up called The Way of the Master. Have any of you guys ever heard of that? Right? The, the Way of the Master is with uh, Kirk Cameron, and, and they're going around, they're interviewing people, and they're asking, hey, do you consider yourself a good person? And they said, yeah. And they were like, okay, well, let's test it out. So they start going through the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother and all these things. And, and, and um, the guys were like, yeah, I did that. And then it comes to, you know, don't commit adultery, right? Don't lust, right? And he asks, what about this one? Well, yeah, I've done that. Well, then according to the Bible, you failed every single one. Because you've committed one sin, you are guilty of them all. And as a result of that one sin, you deserve to die. But God in his grace and his mercy says, no. I have a payment for that. And I'm giving you the freedom to choose it. You have a choice, whether to, to accept me or, or to, to not accept me. That is your choice. But there are consequences of that. If you choose me, it's life. If you don't choose me, it's eternal death forever. But the burden of having to follow the laws of the Old Testament, we are free from. That we desire to honor God and obey him? Absolutely, yes. A true repentant heart and, and the disciple is one who hears the words of Jesus Christ and is obedient to it. We cannot say that we believe in Jesus and don't have a desire to honor his commands. But we don't have to worry about the, the, the burden of, of trying to follow them because we have the empowerment of the Spirit. So we're free from the law of death. And because we've accepted Jesus, because we've repented of our sins, we receive the Holy Spirit and we have freedom, a, a new spiritual life in Jesus. This new spiritual life is the ability to know and discern the will of God and to have an intimate knowledge of his person through the Holy Spirit. When a person's dead that doesn't know Jesus, they don't see through the lens that a believer does. So they don't see sin as sin the way we do. And so when we spend all of our time, you know, calling the world out of their sin, they're like, what are you talking about? We don't think it's sin. But as believers, we see that and we know it. Why? Because we're seeing through a new lens. We're seeing the world differently. And those who are in Christ Jesus know the will of God because 1 Corinthians 2 says that we have the mind of Christ. When we are indwelled by the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. So what does this look like for our lives as believers? So we've accepted Jesus and the Spirit comes and indwells us. What's next? What are we to do with that? Because I don't know about you, but when I first accepted Jesus, it was hard. It still is hard. Even as a pastor, I fall short. And I mess up. And I can try to live this life on my own, but I will continually fail miserably. And so what are we to do? Well, first, understanding that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is for everyone who's believed in Jesus. 
right? And we take that indwelling and we nurture our spiritual life, which allows us to, to live an empowered life, right? We can't accept Jesus and be like, okay, I'm good, that's it. I'm just going to sit here in church on a Sunday morning and that's it. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to do anything. I'm okay because I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven and that's it. No, that is unacceptable. In the Christian life, when we accept Jesus, it goes from it's all about us to it's now about Jesus. And we have that mentality that if it's all for Jesus, then there has to be more than just accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we are to spiritually nourish, right? And the first thing we need to do is that we need to surrender. It is hard to accept help. <laughs> it's hard to recognize that we were powerless. But Jesus says, in order for me to empower your life, you must surrender. You must wave that white flag and say, Jesus, take my life. That's the, the crisis part of sanctification is coming to the realization that you have the inability to live the Christ-centered life, the gospel-centered life yourself, and that you desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit to help you live it out. I love what John Stomo, the president of the Alliance, said. He says this, Now we come to Jesus with an even deeper awareness of our own inability. We need him for the power to overcome sin. We realize that we are unable to live a holy life, to be sanctified on our own. We cannot experience the life he has for us on earth. His kingdom come, his will be done in our lives now without his intervening power. This is a crisis of surrender and submission. For many of us, it is a joyful acknowledgement that we must have his work in our lives, and he is willing to do such a work. Waving the white flag is an exciting moment when we have come to believe that our conqueror is good. If we firmly believe that Jesus conquered death and sin, then we have to be willing to accept that in our lives. We have to be willing to accept his power and, and, and his desire to come in and, and, and to exterminate and clean out all the darkness and all the sin that's within us. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires with which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your time. He wants you. And when we come to that realization that we are to surrender ourselves, not just give up the things that we have, but surrender ourselves, that is when the Spirit can say, I can now work. And I can continue to work in and through you. Continuing in Galatians 2, it says that my old self, <clears throat> well, I'll read it. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, right? So we just read that. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not treat the grace of God as a meaningless, for I have keeping the law can make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. If we in ourselves can earn heaven, then Christ did not have to come and die. But because Christ had to come and died, it revealed to us that we have the inability to conquer sin ourselves. And so when we continue to try, we'll continue to walk in the flesh with our own power. But when we surrender, saying, Lord, I'm done. Right? I, 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 I keep, I, I've said this before, but I went on a mission trip to Dominican Republic, and, and there was something that just changed my life forever. The the, the one that ran this missions organization, he kept praying, Lord, take a gun and shoot my will. Because I don't want my will, I want yours. I want you to remove any desire of myself. And I just want you, Jesus. And it's in that moment that we can live the Christian life. And so we need to surrender. We need to walk in the desires of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 18 through 22 says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, and you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Those two forces constantly are fighting each other. Do you feel like you're in a fight? Do you constantly wake up and feel that battle raging in you? The desire to obey Christ, but then the desire to fill your own desires, the flesh. And this battle is keep going back and forth. So you're not free to carry out your own good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Does this sound familiar? When we look at our world, doesn't this sound familiar of those who are walking according to the flesh? I mean, we can look at the current events that happened these last few months, and we're like, that is not the mind of Christ. The world doesn't need more riots and more looting. The world doesn't need charging the Capitol building. The world doesn't need any of that. What the world needs is the mind of Christ. What the world needs is what the, only the Spirit can give us. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I love this part, part, right? What does the Spirit give us? Gentleness, peace, love, joy, self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have now the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives, Every single part. I heard this story. It's called uh, um, My Heart Christ Home. And there's a part of it where, where, you know, Jesus comes in and he's hanging out with this guy and, and he's trying to work, you know, all these rooms are, are areas of this guy's life. And then Jesus at the end says, hey, what is that smell? And he goes up and he realizes that there's this closet that was locked and closed. And Jesus says, if I'm going to make my home here, you're going to have to give me that closet because I need to clean it out. Jesus doesn't just want our arm, 
for our leg. He wants all of us. And we have to surrender every single part of our lives. If we are to walk in the Spirit, if we are to to live out the Christ's gospel-centered life that we are called to live, We do not feed our soul with healthy spiritual food. Right? In order to surrender, we have to continually look into God's word for truth. We have to continually look at what Jesus has to offer and what the Holy Spirit desires to do. So we have to feed our souls with healthy spiritual food or we will become spiritually weak. My, uh, my youth pastor and his wife growing up, every year they do what they call the 40-day fast where they fast from food for 40 days. And by the end of it, you can imagine how weak they are. But they do it because they want to draw closer to Jesus and realize that they have to die to their flesh in order to do that. And so we have a spiritual discipline called fasting where we give up something to realize our inability to give it up without the power of Jesus. And so when we don't feed our souls and we don't feed our spirit the spiritual food that it desires by reading the word, by praying, by intentionally walking in community with other believers, we will starve our soul. And as a result, we will feel weak. And when we are weak, we will fall to the flesh. When we surrender... And we say, God, I desire a spirit-filled life. Here's what God promises. The primary experience of a spirit-filled life are personal peace and participation in the ministry of bringing peace to the world. The world doesn't need anger. The world doesn't need chaos. The world needs the peace of Jesus. And we cannot give the world what it longs for, what it's hungry for, if we ourselves are not walking in that spirit. I don't always follow that. I confess that there are times in my life where I realize that I do not walk in the spirit. And one of those times is, you know, I'm stubborn. My daughter Chloe is stubborn. And when she doesn't have her ears on, she gets louder, and I get louder, and the tension roars. And in that moment, I realize that I am not walking in the Spirit because I am getting angry at my daughter who cannot hear me. She can't hear me, and I'm yelling at her. But in order for me to effectively parent well, I need to walk in the Spirit. In order for you guys to be the best grandparents you can be, to be the best bosses, to be the best coworkers, to be the best friends, you have to continually wake up with the intention of saying, Lord, fill me. Help me to walk in the Spirit. So this is my dog, Zadok. He's going to be a four-year-old lad. And the reason I bring him up is, you you, you guys, when you first got dogs, you attempted to walk him, Correct? And how was that experience? For me, it was pretty rough because the dog would want to go this way and I would want to go this way, right? And, and it, took, it took work, it took conditioning, it took training for us to get to a point that for the most part, we can walk in a straight line together. But being a lab, he wants to start sniffing over here and what happens? Well, he gets yanked, right? Because he's not walking in the direction he's supposed to be walking. But what I'm saying 
And so you might look at this and be like, Mike, it is hard to walk in the Spirit. It is hard to condition myself because my flesh wants this. And I know that the Spirit of God wants this. Please know that this is a process. This isn't an overnight transformation. You don't just accept Jesus and wake up, okay, I'm holy. Oh, right? You have to condition yourselves. And just like I have to condition my dog to walk with me, and when he's walking and he's right next to me, it's easy, right? We can keep walking and it's enjoyable. And there's life and there's peace because I, he's walking. But as soon as he goes like this, peace is thrown out the door because I'm trying to pull him back, right? The Spirit wants to do that as well. And so while you're on your journey with Jesus, there's going to be painful moments and there's going to be times that you are going to fall into the trap of your flesh. But pick yourself back up and know that you have freedom to walk in Jesus, that you have freedom to walk in the Spirit, and it's continually saying, Lord, help me to die to myself. God, may I decrease, and may you increase. So what is the conclusion? A person with a well-fed soul who is empowered by the Spirit has the freedom to follow the Spirit. When we surrender our lives, and we are willing to say, Lord, come, Spirit, come, come into my life, come, we have the freedom to follow the Spirit. So my question for you is, where is the Spirit leading you? What are the areas of your life that you realize, I need to fully surrender that in order to fully be empowered by the Spirit? See, you can, you can accept Jesus and just sit there, but you'll never be empowered by the Spirit if you are not willing to say, Lord, use me, fill me, I am yours. So with that, I'm just going to close with a video. And I want you to process through that. What areas of your life do you need to give over to Jesus in order for you to say, Lord, here's all of me. Do you know what I believe? I believe that this church and you who are now in this building, I believe that we could have and enjoy a sense of the divine presence so sweet, so beautiful, so tender, that it would change our whole personality, that it would change our attitude toward each other, that it would clear up a lot of things some of you are troubled with inside of you, that it would be like the coming of spring to a landscape, sweet and fresh and warm with birdsong and sunshine. There would just be a coming down of the dove. He could find no place for the soles of his feet. And I wonder if that isn't the trouble now with Moses. You want to be filled and blessed, but you're not willing to pay the price. The man who loved the world enough to die for it, died for it. He's here. We'll always be here. Oh, I'm with you always. The Spirit seeks, I say, among us a resting place for his feet. The Holy Ghost seeks a resting place for his feet. And uh, these comings down, we have called them revivals, put away all of the things or any other thing, and say, come 
come, Lord Jesus. Lord, so our heart's desire today, may we be willing to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Take all of me. God, help us to realize, to give up, to surrender, to crucify ourselves on that cross and leave us there. Say, I want to take Jesus. Here's myself. May our heart's desire align with your desire to empower every part of our being so that we can live the gospel-centered life that we are called to live. God, may we be a light on a hill. May our light shine bright, but it can't shine bright, Father, if we're not willing to allow you to shine through us. So God, take away anything that's hindering that light from shining through us. Remove any part that's dimming that light, Father. And I pray, God, that today, from here on out, Father, that we'll continually sacrifice ourselves so that you get the glory. God, may our prayers be, may we decrease and may you increase in our lives, Jesus. Thank you that we can have freedom in you. Thank you that we are no longer condemned from living out the law. God, that we're free in you. We're free to live the life that you've initially created for us. But that first comes that we have to find our identity in you. We have to find our identity in the one that died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And it's in that moment, Father, that we can have freedom to live the life we are called to live to be the man or woman of God that we are called to be. God, may we be the church that you've called us to be in a world that doesn't know you, that doesn't desire you, Jesus. May we show them the hope that we have, the reason why we believe. Give us the power to do that, Jesus. In Christ we pray. Amen.